Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. I'm Renee. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. Welcome back, Burrito family. Thanks for joining us again to get lost in that sauce with us. Now, before we go into the details of the disappearance of Alyssa Turney, we did just want to call out some sweet-ass reviews that we had got. Our first review we got was from Sunrisa, and she said, I'm a newbie to podcasts. I came across your page, and I was like, eh, let's give it a go. Plus, who doesn't love tacos? Your personalities are great podcast is fun yet interesting to listen to five stars exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point two more exclamation points and not only did she give us five stars she gave us five fucking tacos mm, we love them tacos hell yeah thank you so you the best girl and we got a second review from davy hernan he said, someone shared your podcast link on a Facebook webpage. I gotta admit, it's cool listening to you dudes talk about this stuff. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Thanks, Davey. Thanks, dude. We think it's cool to have you listen to us talk about cool stuff, too. I'm a dude. He's, He's a, a dude. dude. She's a dude. We're all dudes. Hey. But for real, thank you, guys. Thank you. We appreciate that oh. people like us. <laughs> all the sweet-ass reviews. Always leave them. Thank you. Thank you. Before diving into the details of the disappearance of Alyssa Turney today, I just wanted to say if you are really interested in this case, I would highly recommend listening to the podcast Voices for Justice. It was actually created by Alyssa's sister, Sarah Turney. Now, it gives a lot of background, including interviews with her family members, and talking with Alyssa's close friends, stories from their childhood, and Sarah's personal journey trying to bring justice to her sister, which is just amazing to say the least that she has the strength to dig into her own past, her family's confronting her father, and it's just an incredible journey and in that she has the willpower to do that. Check it out. Give it a listen if you are interested. She does also have a TikTok and Twitter at Sarah E. Turney. So go check it out. Check her out. I honestly think she's the main reason why this case ended up. Oh, definitely. In the position that it is it, right now. it would have definitely just been left in the dark. Like oh, yeah. if it wasn't for her resilience and Hell like yeah. keep digging and like not forcing stopping, the police to like look into not it. Not getting discouraged, not giving up. Fucking A1, dude. Yeah, even yeah. when she, um, like, recently went on to TikTok, mm -hmm. she still got, like, a lot of negativity from mm -hmm. people. Like, anytime you, you go into anything that's, right. like, social networking, like, you're going to get some sort of negative feedback. Right. But, like, like that just... people tell you that you're too monotone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, 
Best place to start is gonna be the beginning. So Alyssa Turney was born on April 3rd of 1984. When she was just three years old, her mother, Barbara Farner, had met Michael Turney. There was about like a 10-year age difference between the both of them. Barbara was just coming out of a difficult marriage to Alyssa's biological father when they had met. Now, the story of how Michael and Barbara had met, there's varying stories. According to Michael, he had met Barbara and Alyssa hiding in a park whenever she got into a fight with her husband at the time and that he was there to protect them and saying that he was her knight in shining armor. Mm -hmm. But according to others, the story is a little bit different. That Mike went to the bank where Barbara had worked at the time and he would just constantly send her flowers day after day until he eventually asked her out on a date. And um, kind of like a little bit obsessive, like stalkerish. Finally wore her down. <laughs> and wore her down. Like, okay. But at the time, Barbara really was an unhappy in her marriage. And then her and Michael had started an affair. And that's when she had filed for the divorce. The day after the divorce was finalized, Barbara and Mike were married. Barbara already had two kids, Alyssa and her older son, John, from previous relationships. And Michael had three older boys of his own, Rhett James and Michael Turney Jr. Within a year, they had their only child together, which was Sarah Turney, to complete their blended yours, mine, ours family. Unfortunately, things started to take a turn for the worse pretty quickly. Michael became more violent, controlling, and paranoid, and they had also started to fall into financial debt. At one point, they had actually gotten divorced and remarried so that he could claim bankruptcy. After they all were living together, Barbara could tell that Mike would treat Alyssa differently from their other children. There were tons of home videos where Alyssa is just seeking the approval and attention from her stepfather that she never really got back. Meanwhile, all the other children have these videos of heartwarming memories and childhood moments, but anytime Alyssa enters into the shot, she's badgered to get out of it or being yelled at and degraded. Barbara was becoming really fed up with his actions and how he was treating her and felt like something was definitely wrong with that relationship. Even when Alyssa was at a young age, she was only about seven at the time when Barbara had took Alyssa and Sarah to go to the doctor to check for signs of sexual abuse. Some say that the reports came back that there was scar tissue that had suggested sexual abuse. Barbara tried to start saving up so that she could take the kids and separate from Mike and try to get away from him until she was diagnosed with lung and bone cancer. After she had started chemo and her health was deteriorating, Mike made the decision to move the family to Redding, California, away from all of her immediate family. She had brothers, sisters, her mother, all of her family support to get her through it. He wanted to isolate her. And then he grew even more resentful of her as the cancer had progressed. And he would degrade her by saying, how could she leave him here with like all of these kids on his own? And he would tell even her own family members, like her close family, that he needed to start looking for his next wife. Like terrible shit. Like instead of so sad. being supportive, like when everything is crumbling around you mm -hmm. and I can't even imagine that, like going through lung and bone cancer, like that's painful. And then going through chemotherapy and like knowing that it's going to be coming to an end and then your husband isn't even supporting you and takes you away from everybody and it gets even more 
terrifying than that. Three weeks before Barbara had died, Mike just so happened to quit his job working for the electrician's labor union, which means that if she didn't die before February 28th of 1993, he would be left with no health insurance, six kids, no job or money coming in, and there was no life insurance policy if she died after that date. So Barbara, at the age of 34, had passed away within 24 hours of the cutoff date to get the life insurance policy money. Needless to say, there were some questionable details surrounding her death. Some speculate it was related to her morphine dosages in her final days, and Mike had also requested that no autopsy was performed. So take that for what you will. Speculate at your your own will. I am just here as a provider of, provider of information <laughs> that is out there. After Barbara's passing, it seemed his behaviors of obsession, control, manipulation had transitioned to Alyssa, growing worse with each passing year. His parenting had greatly surpassed being considered a strict parent. The boys were older and out of the home at the time. He just had the two girls at the house living there with him. And the ways that they were treated were just two worlds completely different, night and day, entirely. He had security cameras continually surveilling not only outside of the house, but a hidden camera inside the home, an event that pointed downwards to their couch. He had kept recordings of Alyssa like making out with boys or like with her boyfriend. It was a very uneasy feeling and he would keep those videos and would later turn them in stating that they were proof that she was promiscuous. Just uneasy things that a father would never do. Right, yeah. No. It gets even more obsessive than that. Even outside of their home, he would record her at her work. She worked at a fast food place mm -hmm. called Jack in the Box and had videos of her. He would sit in the parking lot and watch her as she was working. So fucking weird. Her boss even told her, like, your dad can't your dad, do this. Yeah. Like, that's not legal. You can't just go around videotaping people all day. And she just talked off, like, trying to make it sound like it was normal. Like, oh, he's just excited. He's excited it's my first, my first job. job. No, it, it's not okay. He would also uh, record all of their phone calls going in and out of the home. To those close to Alyssa, they would describe her as like a normal teenager with high energy. She had a boyfriend that she loved and she was happy with, but Michael didn't like him and in a weird way almost seemed jealous of him, trying to cause fights between them and trying to get her to break up with him. And her friends did say like, she might have been rebellious at times, but what teenager isn't? Right. Experimenting with marijuana or like skip a class here or there, nothing insane. Or like just wanting to hang out with your friends. That's normal. Mm -hmm. That's what teenagers do. Sarah recalls being a lot worse than her sister was growing up, saying that she could come and go from the house as she pleased, did whatever she wanted without any sort of scrutiny from her father. But Alyssa was watched every moment of the day. Michael would say that this was because Alyssa made poor decisions and needed constant supervision for her own well-being and constantly degraded Alyssa, calling her stupid or a moron. And he basically made her feel like she couldn't do anything on her own and made others 
think that she was like incompetent. Through Sarah's eyes, I did just want to give her description of what Alyssa was like. She said that she was kind and caring, but strong. She loved rap and metal, listened to Marilyn Manson, Eminem, Tools, System of a Down, Missy Elliott. Her favorite movies were Empire Records, Liar Liar, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and People Under the Stars. But she loved all the kids shows too, like Rainbow Bright and Blue's Clues. She didn't know what she wanted to do for a living, but she knew that she wanted to be a mom and took child development in school. So she was overall like a caring person and pretty much a typical teenager. May 17th of 2001 was Alyssa's last day of her junior year at Paradise Valley High School in Phoenix. Her stepfather, Michael Turney, had dropped her off in the morning, per usual, and then picked her up early from school around 10.30 to 11 o'clock a.m. to take her out for a lunch. He later stated he picked her up early from school because she was going to dump her boyfriend, John, that day and wanted to avoid seeing him. But... As she was leaving, she popped her head into his classroom to say hi to him and to tell him that she loved him, she was leaving early and would see him later. Michael's family, including Sarah, was unaware that he had even picked Alyssa up early from school that day until after there was an interview with 2020 and 2009, whenever they had found out that this whole thing had happened. While Alyssa and Michael were out having lunch, she started talking about summertime, which turned into an argument. Michael stated she wanted to be able to stay out later at night and not be accountable for where she was at. And I told her, as long as you're under my roof, we're gonna have to check in with daddy because daddy's a nervous wreck if you don't. Basically that she wanted to just be this party monster all night is the way that he makes it sound when he talks to people. Honestly, that's normal high school Literally, she's probably summer 17 stuff. years old and just wanted her curfew extended. Mm-hmm. He said this turned into a, a large argument and whenever they got home that she stored it off to her bedroom and slammed the door. He then left to go run errands. I saw a source say that it was around one o'clock and then would go pick up her sister Sarah from school. That day Sarah had a school trip at a water park but her dad was late to pick her up from the school so she walked to a friend's house nearby and called him to tell her where she was. Whenever he came to pick up Sarah from her friend's house, he said that Alyssa wasn't answering her cell phone and to call her on the phone for him. When they got home, it was around five o'clock, Alyssa was nowhere to be found. Her room was a mess, torn apart, which was out of character for her. She typically kept it nice and clean. All that was left was a note that was left on her dresser stating, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Signed, Alyssa. Sarah and her father said that the handwriting definitely was Alyssa's, but it's unknown if she had written the note that day or if it was possibly a previous runaway letter or if she was thinking about running away before. Did she write that after a fight with her sister, Sarah? Because nowhere in this note does she even mention that she is doing this because of her dad. If I just got into an argument with my parents, I would be like, you won't let me do what I want. Fuck you. I'm out. I'm done. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that just doesn't make sense for how the events of the day happened for a runaway letter. And prior to this whole incident, 
Michael Turney did reach out to Alyssa's aunt, Lynette, that lives in California, saying that he couldn't handle taking care of Alyssa, that she was too much trouble, seeing if she could help and take Alyssa for the summer. But whenever her aunt, Lynette, agreed to take her in, he weirdly backtracked out of it, saying that she was going to stay and he was going to make other arrangements and that she wasn't coming out anymore. And she never heard anything back after that, saying that Alyssa was coming out to stay with her or anything. And another important fact that I want to point out here is that she says, quote unquote, that's why I saved my money. But she had never taken any money out of her bank account. She did save up $1,800 that was left in her bank account untouched. If she's a teenager that's out on her own running away, she would at least clear out her bank account before she left. In this supposed note, she says that she took $300 from her dad. But, I mean, there's no proof of that. You can't track that down. Like, if she actually took $300 or if someone added that after the fact into the note. She had also left her phone sitting on the dresser. So, if she did run away, you would think she would want to make calls to her friends or these other family members to try and crash somewhere for the night or make plans or tell them that she's not going to be there. Or at least tell her boyfriend where she's going. Or tell her boyfriend or her best friends, can I crash at your place? Because she would commonly like mm-hmm. stay over at her friend's house to try to get away from her stepdad right. and her home situation. So why wouldn't she just run back to them? Or if she was going back to California, like it says in this note, then she would need to call her aunts in California or figure out how to get to there. How are you going to do that without a phone? Right. And if you are really that mad, I would have broke that phone. <laughs> Right. If you think about, like, troubled, angry teenagers, mm-hmm. I've broken plenty of phones. Mm-hmm. They said it was one of those, like, brick Nokia ones. I've still broken one. You can do it. <laughs> you smash it a lot more and it gets all that anger out. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, you could say that she would have left the phone because she didn't want to be tracked down. But she already said where she was going. Right. So why would that even matter? Right. It, the whole thing, it just doesn't all fit together. Mm-mm. The runaway puzzle is just not matching to me. Initially, Sarah said that she wasn't too concerned whenever Alyssa was gone. She was thinking she'll be back soon since Alyssa had previously talked about running away a lot. And around 11 o'clock that night is whenever her stepfather, Mike, had called the police department and had reported this as a runaway, that she was going to her family's in California. So the police didn't dig any further because she had willingly left and it seemed like Mike had already known where she was going to, as opposed to a missing person case, which would have caused further investigation. So there was no interviews, no Amber Alert, no visit to the home or inspection of the home after this whole incident. And also just a little mini note of information here. Mike Turney was also previously a police officer, so he would know how to report a missing person or what the difference is between a runaway and a missing person's case, but take that as you will. From there, Mike said that he had started his own quote-unquote investigation for Alyssa, Going to her normal hangout spots, Mike had started calling Alyssa's friends' houses, saying that she had ran away, that he needed help posting flyers and searching for. None of her friends to this point had heard from her, and most of them had thought it's good that she had gotten away. And one of the weird instances with this is, at least from one of the friends' parents, uh, they wouldn't let him speak to their child alone on the phone, which 
10 out of 10, good parenting, Hell good yeah. on you. Yep. If someone's child disappears and, like, would want to speak to my child, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Right. Like, skeptical. Yeah. Because I'm sure even those kids told their parents stories. What had happened. Yeah, like, Alyssa's dad does this to her, or sometimes when I go over there this happens or like who knows what yeah. those parents probably knew something else something was, was up. up yeah so one of the parents made him speak on speakerphone while both of them were present if he wanted to speak to their child so the mother whenever he starts saying all of this like about flyers and she was like yeah we can definitely help post up flyers i can get parents together we'll get the search crew out there right now and get this going and looking for immediately he starts backtracking again, getting weird about it. He's like, oh no, no, the police are looking for her other friends that he had reached out to said that he just never followed up or posted any flyers or even checked in with them to give updates or see if Alyssa had shown up or if they have heard anything. Mm-hmm. Because if you truly don't know where your daughter is and you think that she's running away to either her friends or, you know, somewhere to crash, then you would want to see if she's gotten in contact with any of them. Mm-hmm. He did say that when he tried to put up posters that the police told him to take them down or they would charge him with littering, which I think that's total bullshit. I, bullshit. I think that is a pretty big excuse. Mm-hmm. About a week after her disappearance, he said that he had gotten a phone call early in the morning around 5 a.m. He asked if it was Alyssa. The voice sounded different but he said that he could realize that it was her he then heard some shuffling on the phone followed by some cuss words and leave me alone he said he wasn't sure if she was talking to him or someone that was there with her and then the line went dead after this alleged call he called the police to see if it could be traced but whenever they weren't able to he had then sued the phone company to release the information for this phone number The call came from a payphone in Riverside, California, and lasted about 29 seconds. He then told the police that this was proof that she's in California, but as we talked about before, he recorded every phone call in and out, but this conversation wasn't recorded. Was not recorded. Weird. Weird. Take that for what you will. (laughs) Yeah, so there is no proof that it was Alyssa on the phone. Only that there was a phone call that was coming in from a payphone in California. Following this phone call, once he got the information that was coming from Riverside, California, he would make multiple trips back and forth to California, saying that he was looking for Alyssa, going to local hangout areas, putting up flyers in Riverside. One weird thing that he said that he had done was he rented a pretty car that he knew that Alyssa would like and would catch her attention. (sighs) Okay. I'm not sure how that is a logical thought it's not like it almost sounds like he's trying to be like a teenage boy flirting with somebody like i know that's terrible to say but like that's the way that it sounds like if i get a hot rod car then it will attract women like you know what i mean like that's weird and um sarah even talked about she had gone on one of these trips with him and it seemed almost more like a vacation than looking for Alyssa. In his interviews or talking to people around this time, he would make it sound like he was single-handedly trying to track down Alyssa and that no one was helping him. But 
in reality, he's the one that had reported this as a runaway, even with his experience as a previous cop and like knowing that there was going to be no further investigation. He made it presumably sound like he knew where she was. He also made it sound like he had canvassed the area, like talking door to door to neighbors, trying to find Alyssa, but their neighbors didn't even know that she was missing. The only ones that he had made any attempt of contacting were those that were close to her or that would go looking for Alyssa. And he would also try to paint this picture of Alyssa as some out of control wild child that did drugs, was easy, attracted to guys with tattoos and piercings, or talks of her being bisexual, which his emphasis on like her sexuality is just so cringeworthy and makes you feel so uncomfortable. Yeah. He also had this constant over exaggeration of her mental capabilities. He said that she was tested and proved to have ADD, but he would say that she didn't even know how to dial a phone, that she was too impressionable or a moron, and she couldn't take care of herself, so that's why he had constantly watched her every move. According to family and friends, that was far from the truth. And also, if, like, that gets my brain ticking, like, so if you're saying she can't do anything on her own but you think that she was gonna somehow run away run california to california with no money call you from a pay phone Mm -hmm. on her own how to dial a phone but she doesn't know how to dial a phone and she remembers your phone number so take that for what take that for what you will all in the budget of three hundred dollars something is afoot In 2006, five years after Alyssa's disappearance, the Phoenix police contacted Mike Turney with the news that convicted killer Thomas Heimer, nicknamed Psycho, had confessed to murdering Alyssa. And I just want to point out that he had done this in the douchiest way possible. So he turned to a prison guard and handed him a picture of Alyssa that he had torn out of USA Today and said, I killed her and I'm going to make you famous. Uh 10 out of 10, unmetal as fuck. No. You are a grade A douchebag. Yep. Thomas Heimer, he was initially arrested a few months after Alyssa's disappearance and then sentenced to life in prison for a completely unrelated murder in 2003. Once he was in prison, he passed time by writing letters to local investigators describing how he killed 21 women, girls that were like Alyssa who dropped off the grid. He said that he had met Alyssa outside of a biker bar in Phoenix, Arizona, that she was high on drugs in the back of this big tan van, that he had punched the owner of the vehicle in the face, him and Alyssa drive off together and started a relationship, eventually stealing a Nissan and driving to Georgia together, where he had strangled her to death in a hotel. Once he had strangled her, dismembered her body in the bathtub, and put into garbage bags and dumped her in an industrial site. And I just want to point out here, so the story that he came up with, like how he killed Alyssa, is pretty much identical for the murder that he had committed and that he was currently serving time for. When the investigators from the Missing and Unidentified Persons Unit started investigating Thomas further, his fairy tale murder story started to all fall apart. One of the things that just didn't line up was the fact that he had said that Alyssa was a heroin addict. 
she didn't have any history of being a heroin addict. That's kind of hard to hide from your friends, family, and pretty sure that her obsessed stepfather would have had it on video somewhere if she was doing heroin. And he had also tried to claim that she had weird sexual behaviors, which her boyfriend before her disappearance had denied anything like that. When the investigators tried probing even further about Alyssa, he started to fumble not knowing details about her and even admitted that he might have been mistaken. And then he had failed a polygraph test whenever he was asked more questions about Alyssa. Basically, he just wanted to become a famous serial killer since he was already sentenced to life in prison anyways. Why not? Might as well be- Why not be a bigger douchebag than you are? (laughs) Why not be more human garbage than I already am? There was a silver lining in this whole entire shitty act. It did bring the spotlight back to Alyssa's case, which until this point had little information and essentially starting from scratch all over again. Once the story of the false confession hit the news, Alyssa's friends contacted the police with some very disturbing allegations about Mike Turney's relationship with Alyssa. There were multiple stories that Alyssa had told friends like how Mike had sexually abused her or attempts of abuse. Instances where she woke up gagged or handcuffed One of the stories that had came out was from Alyssa's boyfriend, John, at the time. She had confided in him about Mike Turney had once taken her out to some deserted land, pulled off of the road, and then tried to sexually assault her, and she had to fight him off. Mike Turney had a history of doing this. Like, he had done this with multiple family members, where he had tried to take them out to deserted places and assault them. The fucking piece of fucking garbage dude sure was we're just gonna keep digging in the garbage for a minute so prepare yourself this one is also pretty hard to hear but all of them are going to be when nine-year-old Alyssa told her third grade teacher diane boardman that she was having sex with her dad mike claimed that she was lying and the accusation was pretty much just entirely dropped Interesting enough, Mike was actually in a relationship with Diane Boardman at this time, and she was married to another man. Another disturbing story is when Mike's nephew David was staying at their house for about six months, sometime between 1998 and 1999, one night he had put in a VHS tape that had the label of Dr. Doolittle on it. To his surprise, what he had played was much more disturbing. There was a girl wearing only shorts on the couch with the eyes covered with newspaper. And in the film, there was another girl that he believed was Alyssa and one of Alyssa's friends on the tape. After seeing this, David had immediately packed up his things and left. Mike had denied all of these allegations and stated that he had never harmed his stepdaughter and denies that the video ever existed, said that David was just a drunk and that he had kicked him out of the house. Hmm. So basically changing the whole entire story. Right. There is a part of Mike's history that I do just want to point out here. Mike himself was sexually abused by family members all throughout his childhood. Not saying that anyone that was abused as a child would abuse their own children. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that he did have that history and growing up with that in his family. And he himself had previously tried to sexually assault other family members. So him assaulting his stepdaughter is not necessarily out of the question if you were to ask my opinion on it. Mm -hmm. But once again, take that for what you you will. will. 
The year prior to her disappearance, Mike called Child Protective Services to tell them that if Alyssa ever called to report child molestation complaint against him, that she was lying. So preemptively making those calls before ever even contacted of any sort of complaint or investigation. Which is super fucking... Super red flag. Yeah. Double yikes. Yeah. Hella no. Yep. Although he gave the perception of being compliant with the police with a slew of phone calls, emails, faxes, it was always to point them in a different direction, like looking at California away mm-hmm. from their home or to other male workers that Alyssa worked with at Jack in the Box or her so-called dominating boyfriend. When at the same time, he did also refuse to take any sort of polygraph or sit down with the police and give an interview talking about the day that Alyssa had disappeared or any information. He never gave police the surveillance tapes for the day that Alyssa went missing and said that he had reviewed the eight hours of footage the day that she had disappeared. There was nothing of interest. That's not for you to decide. You're not a cop anymore. That's what you would think? Yeah. I just want to clarify. So his home, he had a slew of surveillance videotapes over the years. And that's the one thing that you didn't give over. Yeah. So one thing you had nothing of interest on. Nothing. If not it's one not thing. not interesting, then what, why not give it to them if they're asking for it? Exactly. Like, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. And that would give them so much information. What was she left what was wearing? She wearing? What did she look like? What did she take with her? What direction did she go in? What was her mood for the day? Mm-hmm. Like, was she upset? Was she happy that she was leaving? It gives so much information. And as a ex-cop, you would think that you would know that. Right. I hate him. And that's bringing me to December of 2008. The police had executed a search warrant on the house in hopes of any evidence on Alyssa's case. They were able to detain Michael when he was outside of the house. He was on his way to go get the mail. Just to get the fucking mail, he was carrying two guns and seven fully loaded magazines on him. Holy shit. Upon entering the home, they found 19 high-caliber assault rifles, two handmade silencers, a van filled with gasoline cans, 26 homemade pipe bombs, endless videotapes and audio recordings that we talked about. There was disturbing snuff tapes, and one of them he had, like, specifically edited to watch this scene multiple times, like, specifically looped it, which is super fucked up. There was multiple contracts that he had made Alyssa sign that were oddly specific, stating that he had not sexually abused her, that she didn't do drugs, smoke, engaging in sexual activity with boys younger than her, or engage in bisexual acts. It, it was very oddly specific contracts. Right. Like, usually a parent will give you a contract for, like, chores. Yeah. Or, like... <laughs> I hereby declare that I will wash the dishes for... Five dollars a month. Yeah. Like, okay. Not like, I'm not molesting you. Yeah. Sign below. Like, fucking weird. It's very disturbing like looking at these contracts like it just lets you know that something is definitely wrong something was wrong and then in a safe they had found a 98 page manifesto titled diary of a madman martyr 
So in this diary, it accused the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers for being behind Alyssa's abduction and murder. That it was all revenge for when he worked as an electrician back in the 1980s and complained about workplace conditions. In this manifesto, he wrote that he had already tracked down and murdered the two assassins responsible for Alyssa's death and that Alyssa was buried in the Desert Center, California. As his final revenge plot, he planned to blow up Union Hall, killing himself in the process. Police believed that he was going to follow through with these plans in a matter of days at the next Union Hall meeting. He literally had how many pipe bombs? He had everything ready. He was ready to go. How he tries to explain all of this after the fact is completely different. So after his arrest, he told the media that the bombs weren't even his, that the police had planted them in his house, but that he did also have a plan to take his own life to bring attention to Alyssa's disappearance, so making himself a martyr in some sort of way. But he wasn't going to hurt anybody, just himself, to sacrifice for Alyssa and her story. Then, a couple years later, in a different interview, he said that they were just merely fireworks that were in his house. They were his. They were just fireworks. They were just to make noise if he needed them as a distraction. But what about the 19 high caliber assault rifles or two silencers like all of this stuff to what yeah this guy literally has he's got issues he does definitely have issues which we will yeah get into but he has a very long history of issues mental issues In March of 2010, Michael pleaded guilty to possessing 26 unregistered pipe bombs. He was sentenced to the maximum term of 10 years in federal prison. At this time, Sarah and her brother, they did still believe that their father was innocent and tried to advocate for him, testifying during his hearing that he wasn't a violent man. That did kind of change after she wasn't under his influence anymore and their kids weren't seeing him all the time they started to kind of get things a, together themselves. put things together and grasp on like reality like what it is which it does just speak volumes to me that if your children at first were advocating for your innocence and then turn around and is like no yeah guilty af Yeah. Even coming from, like, Sarah's perspective, she said that she was, like, a daddy's girl. She got everything she wanted. He was her best friend growing up, and Mm -hmm. everything was copacetic. But in reality, like, it's a whole bunch of, like, brainwashing almost. Mm -hmm. In this trial, the judge cited reports that Michael suffers from a paranoid personality disorder that was worsening in spite of the psychiatric treatment that he was receiving twice a week. A forensic psychologist whom Michael himself had asked to testify at this hearing said that he was dangerous and high likelihood of future violent behavior. After Michael was released from prison in 2017, Sarah met with him and asked for the answers that she had all these years in regards to Alyssa's disappearance. And in his response, he said that he would only tell the truth when he is on his deathbed or if the state would guarantee to execute him. Like, that's just telling right there in itself. Like, you literally just gave yourself up saying that, in my opinion. So why not just fucking tell the truth? Just admit it. Yeah. What happened? Just say what happened. Don't be a piece of shit, like, to your own daughter that has been struggling with this her whole entire life. Like, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. And besides, like, all of the red flags that we had already talked about with the allegations of child abuse, all of the recordings, the obsessiveness. Even after Alyssa disappeared, 
I did just want to bring up some of the sketchy shit that he had done. Shortly after her disappearance, they moved out of the house that they were living in whenever she had disappeared and moved right next door where you could still watch the home and look at it, which is weird. Mm -hmm. Why would you even put in the effort to move at that point? It was pretty identical, same neighborhood and just looking at the house. Also, truly, if your daughter did run away and you were hoping that she came back, why would you Would you leave? Another red flag was he sold the family car and bought a nearly identical vehicle. The last vehicle that Alyssa was seen in has never been searched and never could be searched because he sold it. And why sell your car and get a, an identical vehicle? Like that doesn't even make sense unless you don't want them to have that evidence and you want people to think that you're still driving around the same car. Mm-hmm. So... After looking at all of the red flags here, thankfully, on August 19, 2020, Michael Turney, 72 years old, was arrested in Mesa. The grand jury charged Michael Turney with second degree for the murder of Alyssa Turney. Police officials referred to the case as a no-body homicide since Alyssa's body has never been found. The Maricopa County Attorney Office announced the arrest and charges, but the county attorney, Alistair Adele, declined to provide any details about the case or what new information may have led to the arrest after so many years. Granted, being charged with a crime, the defendant is presumed innocent until proven guilty, so the fight to bring justice for Alyssa continues. With every fiber of my being, I truly hope that this brings the case to a just end that the answers that her sister Sarah Turney has been searching for, because she's continuously been advocating for Alyssa since the beginning. And just once again, if you're looking for even more information on this case or um, how to show your support, the full depth story is on our podcast, Voices for Justice. If you look up her social media, it's Sarah E. Turney on Twitter, TikTok. So I just wanted to to put that out there because she has put her whole heart and soul into this entire case. Now, I know that this has been a rough case, and I did want to take a minute to address an important topic. Throughout this whole entire episode, we did discuss a lot of sexual abuse. Since we are currently in a state of quarantine, leaving some home feeling helpless, if anyone listening is or has been a victim of sexual abuse, there is help available through the National Sexual Assault Hotline or... Available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-800-656-4673. They are available through live chat at rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. This is not a sponsored message. We do just want to ensure that all the Thai family is safe and have all the resources available if needed. Because we love you. Yep. And if you love the creepy burrito, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes, or rate us on your streaming app. Hell yeah. If you're feeling down, Renee, where can they go to view some funny fucking memes? Well, they could probably hit up our Facebook or maybe our Instagram at The Creepy Burrito. You can always send us an email at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. So write us. We'll write you back. We promise. Yeah. Do it. We're very good at writing. (laughs) (laughs) yeah we went to school we went to school once i can read sometimes sometimes and as always come back to get lost in that sauce with us 
Same creepy time, same creepy channel. Oh, I like that. That's cute. Uh, on that note, uh, uh, bye-bye now. After these few messages, <laughs> after Shelby these Renee few rant. brief messages about <laughs> Instant Star, Redbox, and how DVDs are irrelevant. And we love Final Destination and these big blankets. <laughs>